Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week we'll tee up what could very well be a make or break kind of movie for Warner Brothers. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. One of my favorite shows is back for a remarkable 16th season, and it's the 30th anniversary of a movie 65 million years in the making. I've also got a review of Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Two amazing shows are back on Netflix. And speaking of Netflix, The God of Thunder is back, but in an even more exciting way. But first, this weekend, The Flash gets a little help from his friends. I created a world with no metahumans. And now there's no one to defend us. Want some help? The Flash is finally out in theaters this weekend following multiple delays caused by director changes, the pandemic, and post-production setbacks. Plus, there's been the added headache for Warner Brothers that the star Ezra Miller kept getting arrested. But Michael Keaton is back as the Cape Crusader in the movie, and that's going to be worth a fortune in ticket sales, I'm sure. Looks like they're cooking in the multiverse, so I guess anything can happen. The DC movies have been a mess for years, especially behind the scenes. They're always shifting gears, changing directions, even when it seems like they're getting it together they blow it up for something else so who knows i'm glad we're though we're also getting some batfleck in this as well i really like ben affleck as batman but it's the flash's movie he was an entertaining part of justice league both versions but especially the snyder cut so we'll see what he can do in his own movie it's at 68 percent on rotten tomatoes all right hopefully the flash gets that fortune in ticket sales because they need it for the dcu now the next one never did i imagine I would be as excited as I am for a movie sequel on Netflix, but I am pumped, pumped, I say, for this one. This weekend, Chris Hemsworth is back in Extraction 2. China, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you fought your way back. You came back for this. Why? So the first extraction debuted in April of 2020. It was about a black market mercenary who's got nothing to lose. He's hired to rescue the kidnapped son of an imprisoned international crime lord. It was largely set in a grungy, dirty, mean part of Bangladesh. And Hemsworth's Tyler Rake is a one-man wrecking machine. It had some terrific action, including an 11-minute scene that's made to look like a single take, or I guess as they call it, a oneer. And in this new one, they've got a 21-minute action sequence oneer. Hemsworth says he spent every waking moment for months working on this shot, which, as you can imagine, took lots of planning. It took months and months of rehearsals and, and updating the fight sequences throughout the day on sh as we're shooting, altering, tweaking, changing, go home at night, rehearse again, rehearse the weekends. Um, you know, and a lot of risk involved, a lot of challenges, but the reward was exponential and again it's not one single shot but they make it look like it's a single shot and if you watch the teaser trailer and the full trailer you can see many elements from that oneer it involves a prison riot and somehow shifts to a shootout on a train it just looks nuts and in this movie tyler rake 
managed to escape death, and his new mission has him go into a prison to rescue a family from a ruthless Georgian gangster. Georgia the country, not the state. I liked the first one when I first saw it, but didn't love it. The second time I watched it, I loved it. Hemsworth gives a quiet but emotional performance as a man with nothing to lose, but also a man willing to do whatever it takes to do the right thing, and the action is Crazy punch, kick, guns, bombs, car chase, flames, action, extraction. You told me to find the reason I fought my way back. Let's find out. The early reviews are decent, by the way, hovering around 80% on Rotten Tomatoes as of the time of this recording, Thursday afternoon. Also new in the big screen, back to the big screen, it's Disney Pixar's latest adventure, Elemental. Meet the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket. Earth can be a little seedy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing weird going on here. Uh, just a little pruning. Water is always getting into something. Fire, as ordered, we run a little hot. I think this looks wild. It takes us to Element City, where all the elements live. Air, earth, water, and fire. We meet Ember, who is made of fire and never really ventures out of fire town. Soon she meets Wade, who is made of water, and they soon learn that maybe, just maybe... Elements can mix. It looks really imaginative. I think it should be a lot of fun on the big screen, especially in 3D. Surprisingly, it's only at 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I say surprisingly because so many of Disney Pixar's movies are slam dunks, but I think it still looks fun. Up next, I've got a review of Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Was I once again disappointed in the live-action Transformers? Details in a moment. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. It wasn't getting the best reviews, or should I say, beast reviews, but I went to see it anyway. Transformers Rise of the Beasts. We are in the middle of a war. We have one last hope. Maximals, this is about the fate of all living things. We're not going to win this one. But we have a chance. Transformers Rise of the Beast. Yeah! Short review. I liked it. First, here's the summary. It's directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who directed Creed 2, which means it's not Michael Bay. He did the first five movies, which is why most of them sucked. I like Michael Bay, but his Transformers movies largely disappointing or just straight awful. He also didn't direct Bumblebee, which is probably why it too was great. This is the seventh live-action Transformers movie since the franchise launched in 2007. Most of them are bad and more bad. A couple of them are good. One of them is great, like I just mentioned. The Transformers giant robots from the planet Cybertron. They transform into things. The Autobots are the good guys. The Decepticons are the bad guys. But things are a little bit different in this one. No Decepticons this time out. Instead, we have Terrorcons, minions of the giant, transforming, planet-eating god, Unicron, first featured in the 1986 animated movie. The best movie of the bunch, like I mentioned, is the last one, Bumblebee, which served as both prequel and reboot. 
It was terrific. It was set in the 80s, and now Rise of the Beasts is set in 1994, starting in New York, where we meet Noah Diaz, played by Anthony Ramos, who was in that In the Heights movie you liked, Jeff, and he was in Hamilton. Noah lives in Brooklyn, trying to take care of his mom and his little brother, who is sick, and they need money bad. We also meet Elena Wallace, played by Dominique Fishback, who most prominently was in the 2021 movie Judas and the Black Messiah. She plays an intern at a museum who is a genius who can identify if art or artifacts are real or not. And when an interesting artifact comes in that she can't identify, she quickly tumbles down a rabbit hole. And eventually, through a series of weird events, they both come together with the Transformers. And we quickly learn Unicron's minions are coming. And if they get their hands on something, that could herald the arrival of Unicron and the end of our planet. And eventually... They all team up with the Maximals from the popular Beast Wars cartoon in the 90s, making their live-action debut. That's all you need to know about the plot. Transformers Rise of the Beasts opened with a respectable $61 million domestic. Respectable considering Spider-Man Across the, the Spider-Verse had just opened the week before, and it had a big second weekend at $55 million. It's just a jam-packed summer season. So far, Transformers has made $193 million worldwide. Biggest opening, by the way, for a Transformers movie was the second one, Revenge of the Fallen. It made $108 million its opening weekend. As for the critics, Rise of the Beasts has a 53% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but it does have a 91% audience rating. And I am pleased to report that on this one, I am with the audience. It was way better than I expected. I went in fully ready to be disappointed. And not only was I not disappointed, I was delighted. Besides Bumblebee, the movie, it's easily the best Transformers movie since the first one. It might even be better than the first, but I'd have to watch them both again because in spite of its flaws, that first Transformers had some magic about it since it was the first time we'd seen live-action Transformers. This new one had a heart. It was fun. It had cool effects. They brought the Autobots and Maximals together in a way that made sense. They introduced Unicron and some of his jerks, and they even had human characters who weren't super annoying. And on that last point, part of the big problem with these live-action Transformers movies is they have to center it around a central human character or two. Like, we're there for the Transformers... But it would be way too expensive to have them in every single scene, and the visual effects would be so labor-intensive, like they must already be a nightmare for these movies. And in the first movie, I could get behind Shia LaBeouf's character, Sam Witwicky. He was a good kid, bit of a geek at school, had a crush on the hot girl, played by Megan Fox, wanted a car, got a bit of a beater car, turned out to be a Transformer, and then he gets sucked into a world of adventure. But then he, he and his story became... A bit more annoying in parts two and three, and then they introduced a new human protagonist for parts four and five, and Mark Wahlberg, who was also kind of annoying. And uh, especially in that first movie, there's there's way less Transformers action than we'd like because, again, visual effects. That one came out in 2007, so they overloaded it with supporting characters and subplots, and all of them were annoying. In this one, as mentioned, Noah Diaz, you just expect he's going to be annoying by default because it's a Transformers movie. But immediately we see he does have a compelling story. He's got a sick brother. He's trying to take care of him, trying to get a job to help pay the bills, has to make a tough choice, ends up in a Transformer, gets sucked into a world of adventure. And then we meet Elena, who's also a pretty cool character, and she too gets sucked into 
the aforementioned world of adventure. And it also, this movie, cuts out a lot of the excess garbage that Michael Bay would jam into his Transformers movies. Like, A, the runtime is just over two hours for this. Most of Michael Bay's movies were much longer. They, and they were all chock full of juvenile, time-wasting humor to the point where the jokes and gags would continuously take you out of what's supposed to be a tense scene. Yes, you can use comedy to cut the tension just for a moment. Marvel does this very well. I think of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, for example, in Captain America Civil War. They've got some great scenes that last like two seconds, and then they get back to the action. And yes, there were a couple of silly little gags in Rise of the Beasts, but not enough to make me roll my eyes. Also, no racist characters amongst the Transformers. Bay had a habit of injecting many of his characters with these racist stereotypes. This new one actually manages to take a tongue-in-cheek shot at that with one of the characters who's introduced into the movie later. As for the Transformers, I will say this. In Bumblebee, all the Transformers looked better than ever. They looked closer to the cartoons than any of the previous movies. They simplified the designs and the transformations. In this new one, they went back to a slightly more complex look for some of them, which I didn't quite understand, but they all still looked cool. And for the hardcore Transformers fans... There will be some nitpicking because Mirage, who is from Gen 1 Transformers, is a Porsche instead of a McLaren. In the cartoons, Jazz was the Porsche. Whatever. Having him be a Porsche in this served the story better, I guess. And Wheeljack was a race car in the original stuff. Now he's Van for some reason. Again, whatever. Not a huge deal for me. As long as Optimus Prime is a semi-truck with a flat truck face and Bumblebee is still yellow and black, I don't care. Like, he was a VW bug in the cartoons, but they made him into a Camaro in this, and that works fine for me. Plus, we get RC for the first time on live action. I think the first time. Maybe she was in Bumblebee. I can't remember. But she looks great and cartoon accurate. She turns into a motorbike. And Peter Cullen continues to be legendary as the voice of Optimus Prime. Sidebar. Did you know about this, Jeff? There's a Transformers animated movie coming out next year. Chris Hemsworth will be the voice of Optimus Prime. Really? Why would they do that? I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Scarlett Johansson and Chris Pratt also going to be in the voice cast of that movie. It's a mini Marvel reunion, but on Cybertron, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Pete Davidson, by the way, was fun as Mirage. Ron Perlman was the voice of the leader of the Maximals, Optimus Primal, a big gorilla. He doesn't get to do much. Michelle Yao is the voice of Air Razor, uh, Bird of Prey. She's probably the emotional center of the Maximals, and I think we hear like one or two words from the other Maximals. Maximals, Cheetor, and Rhinox. So I'm sure the Beast Wars fans will be really disappointed with that. But as for the bad guys, Unicron is voiced by Coleman Domingo. He's been in lots of things. He's one of the, oh, hey, that guy. But uh, you might know him best as Victor Strand in Fear the Walking Dead. He's got a really cool voice, but no one can compare to the great Orson Welles as the voice of Unicron from that animated movies in the movie in the 80s. And Unicron's dialogue was kind of dumb in this. Peter Dinklage is the voice of Unicron's general, Scourge, and he seems to be enjoying himself in the role. The final battle is the big CGI blow em up fight that you've come to expect from superhero movies, but it was still cool and heart-poundy at times, especially with a looming threat of Unicron. And I've heard lots of complaints about the final battle being set in this sort of barren, boring landscape because they're in Peru at the time, which is beautiful, but they put it in this, like, 
just sort of gray dead spot. But I think like to stage the kind of battle they had in a real life familiar setting would have been just so hard to do with that many robots on the screen. So this way they got to control it a little better, I'm guessing. And the way they included the humans in the final fight, even some of the events that set the final fight in motion, there's a lot of convenience happening here. They just magically solve some mysteries. Oh, there, there, there's a magical easy way you can help during the final fight. Oh, here's a fancy suit and you just know how to use it right away because magic. But whatever, who cares? It's a movie about giant robots and a big planet-eating transformer god who's coming to kill us all. Uh, there were also some big, big crowd-pleasing moments, including one set to LL Cool J's Don't Call It a Comeback, which was the best. Overall, it was an international adventure with some fun twists and turns, good human characters, no unnecessary supporting characters, no unnecessary comedy gags, and some really cool Transformers action. And it had a great soundtrack. Not entirely 1994 accurate. Notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize is, feature, is featured prominently. That song didn't come out until 1997. I'm being nitpicky. It's not perfect, but I had fun. I look forward to the next two. Yes, they've confirmed this is part one of a new trilogy. And I'm going to be generous with this. I'm going to give it four couch cushions out of five just because I had so much fun. P.S. There is a stinger early in the credits, but not after the credits. Up next, one of J.B.'s favorite shows is back for season 16 and 30 years later of... What? You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And one of my favorite shows is back with its 16th season. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. You got the script that I wrote? Grab the script. I've been meaning to speak to you about this. I can't read these words. They're not in the right order. It's good. Read the script once. Okay, you want me to read the script? Yes. All right. And action. I'll read the words you wrote. Hello, fellow American. This you should vote me. I leave power. Good. Thank you. Thank you. If you vote me, I'm hot. What? Taxes. They'll be lower. Son. The Democratic vote for me is right thing to do, Philadelphia. So do. This doesn't make any sense. Sonny has somehow become one of the longest-running sitcoms, and it shows no signs of stopping. It has been renewed through 18 seasons on FXX, so we'll be getting it for at least a couple of more years. It began way back in 2005, created by Rob McElhenney, who plays Mac on the show and who recently bought a European soccer team with Ryan Reynolds. His friends, Glenn Howerton, also seen recently in the Blackberry movie, and Charlie Day, who starred in Horrible Bosses and has been funny in many other things. The three of them really run the show. Add to the cast Caitlin Olson, who actually ended up getting married to McElhenney, and Danny DeVito, who is down for anything, usually the grosser the better when it comes to this. Collectively, they are the gang. They run a dive bar in what looks like a pretty rough part of Philadelphia, and they get in scheming adventures every week. The show also takes on the hot topics of the day. Season 16 premiered this past week with two episodes. One was about inflation, and one was about guns, and both were hilarious. The show has been consistently funny all these years, which is kind of mind-blowing. All-timers like Seinfeld, The Simpsons, and The Office all saw their quality drop off after a while. The last two seasons of both Seinfeld and The Office, I would argue, are not among those shows best at all. But somehow, the sunny crowd is getting it done year in, year out without that drop-off, which is mighty impressive. I think it might just be the simplicity of it all and the fact that they mostly go back to square one at the end of every episode. There's not a lot of coupling off or characters having kids or any of the other re- 
reasons that shows write themselves into corners in ways they can't ignore and affects the quality of the show. Only Mac has really changed over the years. He's come out of the closet. He's gained and dropped an unhealthy amount of weight more than once. Uh, stuff actually really happens with that guy. The others also go through their issues, but again, they're basically the same people now. They were in 2005, except that all these shenanigans are just a little bit more pathetic because now it's happening to people in their 40s uh, who should know better and not people in their 20s like it was at the beginning where you could sort of forgive them, you know, for making bad decisions. So it's just a solid show that delivers every year, year after year. And with all the shows concluding in recent weeks that we've been talking about, it's kind of comforting to get an old favor back, especially knowing that it will be around for a little while yet. So it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's out there. New episodes airing Wednesdays on FXX. Old episodes, all 15 seasons, meantime, are available on Disney+. Plus. Charlie, having somebody making wild decisions that make no sense, that benefits nobody. Oh, yes. Right, yes. Is he listening to us? I can't he, tell. He's listening. He's not understanding. Yeah, he doesn't even, like, get us, man. It's We're talking about you. Ah. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. There you go. Uh, turning from the small screen back to the big screen, one of our favorite movies had a huge anniversary this past week. You feel that? Jurassic Park turned 30. Steven Spielberg's dinosaur masterpiece holds up nicely after all these years. I watched it again, even though I had just watched it again about a month ago. It's one of those movies I can always watch, I guess. It's just a staggering achievement on so many levels, most notably for Hollywood and the world. Jurassic Park, of course, introducing CGI as a major tool for filmmakers. Probably technically wasn't the first movie to use CGI, but it was definitely the first to use it as effectively as it did and for as big an audience that saw it. So, you know, I mean, there's no movie without uh, the CGI dinosaurs as far as Jurassic Park goes. Now, they were kind of prepping to use some kind of animation in addition to the animatronics, and then they were shown what could be done with the CGI, and, of course, movies were never the same again. For Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, the director, Jurassic Park would be his third film to break the all-time box office record after Jaws and E.T. Jurassic Park made over $900 million, the second biggest movie that year was Mrs. Doubtfire, which made $440 million, so that's less than half of what Jurassic Park was doing. And it wasn't even the only movie that Spielberg put out that year, 1993, easily the biggest of his career, because in addition to the biggest box office movie uh, the, the movies had ever seen, he also had Schindler's List, which garnered him more critical praise than he had ever received and won him his first Oscars. Jurassic Park, though, would go on to spawn a bunch of sequels, and as is almost always the case with Spielberg, Spielberg movies, none of them reached the height of the originals. You know, maybe you could say the first Indiana Jones trilogy qualified, but the Jurassic Park sequels always felt more like the Jaws sequels. They lose their bite quickly, although I am a big fan of 1997's The Lost World. 1993 in general, one of the great all-time movie years. I'm sure we'll probably touch on some of the other anniversaries later this year. Uh, just looking at the list, we've already had the 30th anniversaries of Groundhog Day, Army of Darkness, The Sandlot, Dave, and Cliffhanger, and some still to come, like Sleepless in Seattle, What 
love got to do with it? The Firm, In the Line of Fire, So I Married an Axe Murderer, The Fugitive, True Romance, Dazed and Confused, Cool Runnings, The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Piano, Philadelphia, Grumpy Old Man in Tombstone, and many more. I had a list of over 25 movies at first that I shaved down. Uh, 1994 actually would go on to be an even better year, so Hollywood was just kind of firing on all cylinders in 93, and Jurassic Park led the way. So 30th anniversary of that one, and uh, it's just one of the all-time greats. Yeah, the CGI. The, the, it, some of the, 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 the shots in the daytime when the, they first yeah. go out into the field, you can see it. But that with that Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> chase in the dark, that yep. still holds. That looks amazing. That looks like what it would really look like yeah. if you were being chased by Tyrannosaurus Rex. It is a terrifying scene. Yeah. Also, you talk about the CGI. The first movie, as far as I understand, the very first movie to use CGI it was back in 1984. Do you remember The Last Starfighter? Um, I remember the title. I don't know if I ever saw that one. Yeah, it wasn't a big hit. I think they were trying to make it like a, a new Star Wars kind of saga, even complete with a like a big epic orchestral theme. But I loved it. I saw it like 50 times when I was a kid. It's a kind of movie that I can watch with my dad and, and be transported back to when I was eight years old or whatever. Yeah. Uh, at the time, mind-blowing. Now looks rudimentary, but still looks kind of <laughs> neat. And uh, and don't forget about, uh, you talk about movies that, like, yes, Jurassic Park at the time was the biggest, but T2 sort of burst down the wall. When he uh, melts through the iron gates there in the prison or whatever, right? Yeah. That, like, broke people's brains for a little while. Yeah, that was the first, I think, $100 million movie. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, Jurassic Park, that that was, that that transcended popular culture it was just a, it was every you believed you were looking at dinosaurs yeah. it just went whatever we can think of we can make it look real now yeah and uh and sometimes they still don't get it right because nope. especially with marvel <laughs> because they push their vfx people too hard yeah. and don't pay them enough up next we're going to tell you about a couple of amazing shows coming back to netflix this week and some interest. We've just mentioned Marvel, part of the Disney Empire. Well, some interesting changes to some of their huge movies that are on slate. Details next. You are listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. It wasn't long ago. It wasn't even two months ago that I was telling you about a brand new nature show hosted by Sir David Attenborough on Prime Video that arrived just in time for Earth Day. It was called Wild Isles. Well, this week, on this past Wednesday, he, he launched another one on Netflix, Our Planet 2. 60,000 years ago, humans left Africa for the first time. Since then, we haven't stopped traveling to every corner of the Earth. But our journey is just one of many. At any given moment, billions of animals are on the move. And the health of our planet depends on it. Our Planet 2, only on Netflix. So this second season of Our Planet, the first one came out in 2019. First season had eight episodes. This one only has four. Uh, one of the things about this show, especially with that first season, is it it doesn't it shows the brutality of nature and particularly how climate change and and how human beings are messing with 
nature in ways that could be detrimental permanently. And uh, they can sort of continue that with Our Planet 2. I've seen the first two episodes. Jeff, did you watch any of this? I also watched the first two. And uh, looking back, like Netflix sort of shows you if you watch the other ones. And I guess I'd watched the first one of the season one, but not the rest of it. I should. So I need to go back and watch <laughs> the rest of those. But no, it was really good. Uh, like uh, As you would expect from these nature docs, it just... Amazing the the footage these guys can get. Uh, I did enjoy that in the first episode. It was a little bit. Of, there was a little bit of oh, the poor walrus is being chased by the polar bear. Hopefully, the walrus gets away. And then in the second episode, it's like oh, that polar bear is starving. It needs food or whatever. So yeah. it's like who am I supposed to be rooting for here? The, <laughs> the thing to get away or the thing to get eaten? You know, what I mean, there's a little bit of that. Um, also, there was a shot of the polar bear coming out of the water to go after the walrus that. That looked. That was like something out of a horror movie. Just uh, scared the hell out of me. I gotta say, I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" I wasn't expecting it. So, uh, watch for that in the first episode, everybody. Uh, it's really, it's really well done. And I noticed that. And I wonder if it's a Netflix thing, like notes from Netflix that the episodes all end on these cliffhangers. And I was like, and then you got to watch, let it roll into the next one to see if this little bird is going to get away. Uh, Also, sharks eat birds. Didn't know that. I know. I didn't either. Some amazing footage of that sort of thing going on in here. It's it's pretty, it was pretty wild. Yeah. It's, uh, I love, and I like how with each of these shows that Attenborough does, there's a hook. Like that last one I mentioned, Wild Isles, it was all about the British Isles and they just the wildlife in there and how important the British Isles are essentially to the world's ecosystem, mm-hmm. whereas this one focuses on migratory patterns and why they're important. And the, the footage they capture of these animals from all walks of life migrating is just astonishing. Like they have this buffalo mega herd in Botswana, which is extraordinary. A million. Yeah. 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 And then the uh, the lions just sitting around waiting for them to show up because they know they're coming. Or the the locusts. Ugh. First, there's the march of the locusts. I didn't know they started that way. And then eventually they hatch into flying locusts. And it was like okay, 200 billion of them. The biggest <laughs> super swarm in 70 years. That starts in Africa and ends up in India or whatever and like flies over the Himalayas. Yeah. It's wild. That's just crazy. Or this there was this tiny little newborn merlet chick in uh, I think that was in BC that paddles non-stop 70 kilometers out to sea to eat and then another thousand like a newborn <laughs> swims a, and like this thing's the size of a golf ball basically and then it goes to a thousand kilo- kilometers. I complain when I have to park far away from the door at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like the just I took I don't know I was just sitting here taking notes. I took like four pages of notes. I don't know why. Who am I? Who am I re- writing this for? But uh, yeah, Our Planet Two on Netflix. It's so far so good. Yep. But again, you're going to witness nature's brutality. Yeah, in its you most raw. Can't stand seeing an animal get killed at all. Don't watch it. Yeah, it's tough to watch. So Our Planet Two. New on Netflix this week. That was on Wednesday, June 13th. And then on June 14th, Black Mirror is back. So as of this recording, I have not yet watched an episode of Black Mirror. If you've never heard of Black Mirror, this is a show that started back in the UK in uh, 2011. And it's it's a series of standalone dramas. And it was uh, it examined satirical techno paranoia so it's a show it's not really a happy show it's often dystopian and it just imagines it takes sort of 
ideas on pot- potential technology and how it could be used against us or how it could blow up in our face in a sort of be careful what you wish for kind of way. And it's amazing. The first time I finally sat down, because I had one of my buddies harassing me for years. Did you ever get around to watching Black Mirror? I'm like, no, dude, I haven't. So I finally did because they did, I think, only two seasons in the UK. And then Netflix picked it up. And they've since done three, four, five, and six. And they also did that Black Mirror Bandersnatch movie, which was that interactive one where it was like a choose-your-own-adventure. That was okay, but the television shows, the, the episodes Netflix have produced have been terrific. They, the, the level of quality has not dropped off, and they get some pretty big stars to show up as well. But just here's one example from the original series in the UK. They Imagine you could record all of your memories and play them back. That's kind of neat and helpful, but in the context of the story where it centers around this couple that's not really happy with each other right now and they're fighting a lot, they end up throwing these memories in each other's face and they weaponize their memories and it's heartbreaking. But it's excellent. Like, it's some of the best television I've ever watched. So I can't wait for that. Five episodes in season six of Black Mirror. And just wanted to pass this along as well because Disney is shuffling plans for some of its biggest franchises. If you're an Avatar fan, you're going to be waiting a lot longer for some of the sequels. The way of water connects all things. Avatar 3 is being pushed back a year from December 2024 to December 2025. And the fourth and fifth films are being pushed back three years. Four now coming in 2029, five in 2031. Those are just a few of almost two dozen changes at Disney, the parent company of ABC News, announced Tuesday. We also learned two new Star Wars movies are coming in 2026, though no word on what they're about, and no reason for the musical chairs, though some suspect the writer's strike has at least something to do with some of the moves. Jason Athens and ABC News. Hollywood. Yeah, so I think that first Star Wars movie is going to be the one with Rey from the previous trilogy, like the the episode seven, eight, and nine, where she were a few years into her future and she's trying to rebuild the Jedi Order. And then the second movie, I think, is supposed to be the the Filoni verse, where we get the Mandalorian and Ahsoka Tano and Boba Fett and all that stuff comes together. And then the third one is going to be about the very first Force user, the first Jedi some thousands and thousands of years ago. By the way, Avatar The Way of Water is now on Disney+, and Creed 3 is available on Prime Video. I watched that this week. I'll tell you about it next week. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.